Hello. I'm uh, happy to be with you. I left Southern California at some point this morning. <laughs> and uh, we just basically flew in and had a little dinner and had a lovely time worshiping with you. And I'm glad to be with you tonight. Um, forgive me, I, I am recovering. I'm, I don't have a fever. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, oh, oh the flu. Um, <laughs> uh, I just, you know, you get, you, you have it, and then you have the, like the residual sort of hanging on, can't speak, can't breathe, whole thing, which is not, you know, a good idea if you're going to be a communicator, but um, God knows. So uh, you'll keep me in prayer, and my daughter Jessica is with me. She is out setting up books at the book tables, and so you pray for us tonight that I don't spend the whole night coughing so she can actually get some sleep. That would be, that would be a good thing. I'm um, most glad to be with you because I have an opportunity to do the thing in my life that I love the best, which is talk about Jesus Christ. And, um, excuse me, I'm sort of nesting while I'm <laughs> talking to you. It's like, well, this can go here. This pastor, one of my pastors at one point, he would always take off his watch, you know, and lay it here. And then one time he said to me, he said, you know what that means? And I'm thinking, yeah, it means you're watching your clock so you know when you're supposed to end. And I said, well, what does it mean? And he said, absolutely nothing. So... <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> um, I, will, I will try to uh, get you out of here on time. How many of you attend this church? Raise your hand if you're from this church. Good, a lot of you. And then from other churches, you've come in as well. Yeah, good. I'm glad to. I'm glad to see you all. Um, we're going to talk tonight about the gospel and, and I do want to say one thing for those of you who know my books. Um, Comforts from the Cross is a book that came out a couple of years ago. I don't know. Okay, wait a minute. I'm menopausal, so I don't, I don't have any clue about when anything happened. I, <clears throat> and as a matter of fact, I generally don't even know what has happened. Um, like sometime, I, I, not long ago, I said to one of my sons, smart Alec. Um, I said, um, I asked him some question, and he said, Mom, the answer to that question is the same as it was an hour ago when you asked me. <laughs> Come over here, and I will slap you. So, um, all right, I'm menopausal. I have no clue when anything happened, and lots of times people will tell me about something that I did, and I'll say, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> was I there? Did I have a good time? And, They'll say, yeah, mom, don't you really? You know, and no, I don't. So anyway, just saying all that just to say, you know, <clears throat> at some point in the past, I wrote a book called Comforts from the Cross. I, I, I don't know when. And um, anyway, for those of you who have that book and have enjoyed it, it's a devotional book um, that you can have like gospel readings through a month. This book, which I'm very excited about, Comforts from Romans, just came out. This is the first um, conference I've even been able to talk about it. So this is uh, devotional readings 
from the book of Romans for, it was supposed to be 31 days, but there was just too much, so I made it 32 days, and that'll, that'll make all of the OCD people in the audience like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> what am I not that guy with 32 days? So. going to talk to you tonight about the gospel and you know talking to a group of Christians about the gospel is sort of something like mm, attending a driver's education class so um, how many of you have been driving for more than five years okay so if you get a ticket do you have to go like to, you can go take driver's training right and do you do that here you don't? Oh, you don't get tickets. <laughs> you obviously don't drive the way I drive. <laughs> I live in SoCal, and um, when we, if you get a ticket in Southern California, if you haven't had one, like in the last X number of years, then you can do driver's training, and then it doesn't go on your record, right? Okay, does that make sense? All right, so um, anyway, if you've been driving for more than a couple of months, when you go do driver's training, which is like a half, half of a day class, or you can do it online now, which is actually very cool, because you can just, you know, sort of skip through all the slides and get to the questions, you know, and answer them, um, you don't really pay much attention, right? I mean, it's like, eh, I know that. I've, I've heard that. I know the answer to that. Um, I actually got a ticket recently, not, I, I guess I'm not like you, but I, I got a ticket recently um, in the last X number of years. I had a really terrible ear infection. I really am not sick all the time. It just sort of might sound like that to you right now. Um, I, got, I had a really terrible ear infection in a, in a big conference I had to be at in Phoenix, Arizona, so I couldn't fly because my doctor friend told me I would blow my ear out if I flew, so I drove. And um, have you ever driven through like a desert? There's nothing there, right? <laughs> nothing. And I had to borrow my daughter's car, which at that point was new. And I mean, you can go 90 and not even know it. <laughs> so anyway. Um, you just can't imagine my surprise when <laughs> I got home and a couple of weeks went by and I got this thing in the mail that said, you know, you were clocked at doing whatever, I, you know, 90, I, I don't know, um, in the desert and here's a videotape of you doing it. <laughs> you can go online and watch yourself do it, you know, it's really cool. So driver's ed, you know. <laughs> So you go through driver's training and it's, you don't really listen. Now, I'm saying all that um, to say to you that we're in pretty desperate need of the work of the Holy Spirit here tonight. Because my guess is that most of you have heard the gospel message before. How many of you have heard the gospel message before? Good. So, when I say we're going to talk about the gospel, you may in your mind think, well, I should have brought Sally Sue 
who is my next door neighbor and doesn't know Christ because I already know the gospel message and she doesn't know it. So I should, you know, that's, that's kind of what we think. Like the gospel message is a message for unbelievers. And once you hear the message, believe, understand it and believe it, then you sort of leave it behind. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's kind of like, yeah, the gospel is really good, that message about Jesus Christ and what he's done, that's really good for getting in the door. But once you're in the door, you don't really need it so much anymore. Now what's important is all sorts of focus on attention to how we're living today. And that message about Jesus Christ kind of gets left in the dust. That's why I'm saying to you that we need the power of the Holy Spirit here tonight because I'm going to talk to you about something you already know. And some of you are saying, well, it's a really good thing I didn't pay a lot of money for this because, you know, I'll pay. Um, so let's ask the Lord for help, shall we? So join me. Heavenly Father, We're praying that you will do something here tonight that we cannot do, that tonight and tomorrow our hearts will be refreshed and renewed, that some of them will be regenerated, that you will set us on fire, that you will help us to love and remember the gospel, and Holy Spirit, we're asking that you do that. It's not something we can do. So we pray that you would help us. Give us grace, please. Grant us grace to know what it is you're speaking to us and why we need to remember it. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Paul's praying for the Ephesian church, and this is a group of believers, again, a group of believers, people who already know the gospel message. And this is what he prayed in his letter to the church at Ephesus. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And we're praying that the Lord would do that, that he would strengthen us with his power, through his spirit, in our inner man, in our inner person, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, yes, Christ does dwell in our hearts through faith. If you're a believer, if you have come to believe the message, then Christ does dwell in your heart through faith. But listen to how he prays for these people who are already Christians, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Paul prayed that the Ephesian believers would be rooted and grounded in love. And that, I think, is something that we all need to be praying for ourselves our families, our friends, our neighbors, all the time. Because Christianity tends to 
morph. It changes. Once we come into the faith, it tends to change. And so that we become, rather than rooted and grounded in love, we become rooted and grounded in all sorts of other things, programs, things we're supposed to be doing, things we're particularly interested in, you know, our own desires, what we want, and we forget that what we need to remember to be grounded in is God's love for us in Christ. He goes on to pray that you may have the strength, and this is something you need strength for, you can't do this on your own. The Holy Spirit must give you this strength. That you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Here's Paul's prayer, and this is my prayer, this is what I'm praying for you this weekend, is that you will not go away from here with a list of 42 things to do to have your perfect life now. That's not where I'm going. If you want a list of things to do, go to Barnes & Noble. There are loads and loads and loads and loads of self-help books there that will give you lots of lists. We've just come off of the great time of resolution making, right? Walking in my neighborhood the other day and my next door neighbor came out and we were chatting, and which actually in Southern California is really a huge big deal. But anyway, <laughs> she came out and we were chatting and she said, well, did you make any New Year's resolutions? And I said, no, no, I, I don't really do that anymore um, and she, and she said she said well I'm not I don't really do it I'm just gonna tweak a couple things <laughs> um, so you know you, you you come through the beginning of the new year and you know it's yeah I'm gonna get my act together this year and I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna make a list and there's there are so many books that tell you what kind of list to make, to make so that you can have, like, your perfect Christian life now. I'm, I'm not even going to talk to you about that. I'm not getting there. It's just not happening, all right? And the primary reason it's not going to happen is because I think you've already heard those lists before, and most of you don't do them. <laughs> right? That's why you have to start over again every year. You know, or I'm going to get to that diet on Monday. You know, it's like we start over and over again. I'm not going to even talk to you about that. I will talk to you just about the great commandment, but I'm not going to give you any sort of list of things you ought to do to be perfect like me. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and you'll, you already know, but you'll really know I'm not perfect and don't think I am. Well, generally don't think I am. <laughs> uh... What I want you to go away from this conference knowing is that Jesus Christ loves you and that your whole life should be rooted and grounded, consumed with 
the thought of how much he loves you and what he has done to make you his own. That's what I want. That's where we're going. So this conference is not going to be a conference that has any bricks for you to put in your backpack. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, you go in and go to a conference, a lot of ladies' conferences, and, you know, everybody has their own message. This is mine. I'm not going to give you any bricks to put in your backpack to make your life better. I'm going to tell you one thing. God the Father loves you in Jesus Christ. And if you forget that, if you forget how God the Father loves you in Jesus Christ, then your Christianity will turn into this sort of try harder, work harder, make a better list, make more resolutions, get my act together, and while I'm at it, get everybody else's act together all around me. Especially my husband, and when I had children in the home, them. Okay? That's not the primary message of Christianity. The primary message of Christianity is not try harder, kick faster. That's not the primary message. And so I'm going to give you the primary message of Christianity, and please, I'm sure you already know it. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it new to you tonight and tomorrow. Paul prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. With all the saints, you need a work of the Spirit to be able to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and the, to know the love of Christ. He says something very interesting here that surpasses knowledge. He's praying that his readers would be able to do something they're really ultimately going to be unable to do. Can I just tell you that the love of Christ, the love of God for you in Christ is so magnificent, so amazing, so overwhelming, so indescribable that when you go to heaven and you're standing in heaven, and you've been there for 10,000 years, I'm going to look at you, and we're going to look at the lamb, and I'm going to say, did you ever know that about his love? And you're going to say, no, I never knew that. And we're going to fall down on our faces and worship for 1,000 years. And then we'll jump back up and do it all over again. Now, of course, we're going to be doing other things, but just... Can I just tell you? You're never going to get to the place where you can get to the end of understanding the love of God for you in Christ. You'll never get to the end of it. And I will be honest with you. I used to think I spent much, much of my Christianity, much of my Christian life, I didn't come to Christ until right before my 21st birthday, and I spent much of my time thinking that if I thought about the love of God in Christ for me, that if I thought about it a lot, it would make me, <clears throat> I would sort of become a shallow, pansy, kind of like lightweight Christian, oh, the love of God, la, 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 and I wouldn't be serious. 
you know? That's a lie from hell. <clears throat> Paul prays that you would begin to understand, come to know the love of God in Christ for you, and this is the love of God that is beyond understanding, beyond comprehension, that you would come to know this so that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't know why, but the Lord was very kind to give me time to write because he loves me. And I was privileged to spend a good year, perhaps longer, reading books and studying the love of God in Christ. Can I tell you that it does anything but make me a sissy, make me, make me cavalier or apathetic about my Christianity? I'll tell you what the love of God in Christ will do for you. It will set you on fire. That's what love does. It changes you. It causes you to respond. You see, that's what John says, and we're going to get to this later. That's what John says. We love because he first loved us. So that's my point. My hope for you by lunchtime tomorrow is that the Holy Spirit will have so worked in your heart that at least, at the very least, you go away from this time together saying, I love God because he has first loved me. So, what did Paul pray? He prayed that we would be strengthened in the knowledge of how much we're loved so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. He prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in this love. See, when the storms come, you guys get storms here, hurricane things, right? Big wind and blowing, big water in the air. It's amazing. <clears throat> so if you have a tree that has really deep roots, I don't even have to fill out that analogy for you, but you get it, right? We all go through storms, don't we? We all go through storms. All of us will go through times of storms, of wind, of rain, blowing. The question is whether or not you really believe God loves you. Not, the question is not, how are you doing loving God? That's not the question. The primary question is, do you really believe that he loves you? So when the storm comes, when the wind blows, do you really believe that he loves you? And Paul's whole point is so that we will be filled with the fullness of God. You see, I won't want to be filled with the fullness of God. I won't want to be that near to God. I won't want him that near to me. If I don't think he loves me, I mean really loves me, not only loves me sort of, you know, this outward persona, church lady thing, but that he knows my heart. He knows all of those things that I say in my heart that I don't say out loud just because if I did, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> or my friends would say, you need to get saved. 
that kind of thing. He knows all that, and yet he loves me. He knows it about you. And yet he loves you. See, if you believe that he loves you, then you're going to want to be near him, and you're not going to hide from him. So why should we reconsider God's love for us in Christ? Why should we reconsider it? Why should I spend time, you spend your time this weekend thinking about something? You know, you've been singing this since you were a little kid, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, right? You've been singing that since you were a little kid. I mean, did you ever really think about what you were singing? Why should we reconsider God's love for us in Christ? Because our love for him is responsive in nature. You see, there are only two commands, really one great command and one that follows. There are ten commandments, but all of them, as Jesus said in, I want to say Matthew 22, as Jesus said in Matthew 22, there are the Ten Commandments, but, you know, a leader came to him and said, what's the greatest command? Jesus asked that question, and the leader said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Commandment number one. That's the law. The law says you will love God 24-7 with everything that's in you. And you will love your neighbor the way you already love yourself. Jesus didn't say in that command that you needed to learn how to love yourself. Jesus is assuming something there. He's assuming that you already do and that's part of your problem. So, two commands... You know, there's the Ten Commandments, but there's two commands, and that law comes down to me, and it slays me. It kills me, because the reality is there has not been a sustained moment in my life where I have loved God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbors, myself. Now, maybe outwardly on a good day, I flatter myself, outwardly on a good day, I sort of look like I've got it together, but in reality, my heart, as John Calvin says, continually manufactures idols. I'm always worshiping, you know? We just came through Christmas, and Starbucks has a salted caramel. Yeah, I just heard some people yumming. Mmm, it's that salted caramel mocha thing. And... You know, I can just be perfectly fine and thinking about the Lord and whatever and walk in and I see the sign and it says salted and I'm like, hallelujah! (laughs) And I get on the phone and I witness. (laughs) (laughs) They've got it again! (laughs) That's the deal with witnessing, by the way, right? You understand that. You always witness about what you, whatever it is you're worshiping. Whatever you love, you're going to talk about. 
So <clears throat> our love for God is responsive in nature. We've got two commands on our life. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've never done it. If you think you have, I'll talk to you later. Um, <laughs> you've never really done that. Not wholeheartedly, not completely, not with a pure motive. Because just as soon as you think, hey, I'm loving God, you're done. Because then, you know, you're going to fall into worship of yourself. Um, and then, you know, there's the whole love your neighbor. It's like, really? Um, the place I find out generally about how I'm doing loving my neighbor is on an airplane. if you know what I'm talking about. Because if King Kong comes and gets on the airplane and sits down next to me, and, you know, like this is a guy that doesn't understand that there's this invisible line. Like this is my space, and that's yours, dude. <laughs> right? Love your neighbor. You haven't done it. I mean, maybe you've had times when you've been kind, <laughs> which is good. And, you know, worked for your neighbor and loved your neighbor, but I'm just saying, not 24-7. There's only one person that's ever done that. That's Jesus Christ. He has done that. You see, our love for God is responsive in nature, and so what that means is this. If we don't spend time thinking about the love of God in Christ, if instead we spend time thinking about all the things we're supposed to be doing, then we're not going to have that love that is commanded of us. The command is, love God, love your neighbor. Where does that come from? I can get up in the morning and I can pray, and I do. God, help me glorify you today. My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let me glorify you today. Let your kingdom come, not mine. Let your will be done, not mine. I can pray that. I can pray, God, help me love my husband. Help me love my children. Help me love my neighbor. Help me love my neighbor and her dog. Help me, God, please. Where does love come from? You see, love doesn't come from me telling you how to make a list of 42 ways to love your neighbor or God. John talks about where love comes from. In this, the love of God was made manifested, demonstrated, made manifest among us. What does, what does love look like? You know, we're talking about love here. It's not Valentine's and Hallmark cards. You know, we're coming up now on the great day of discontent. <laughs> you know, Valentine's Day, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't matter what you get. It's really just kind of not good enough. <laughs> if you live for it, if you need, if that's what you need in order to be okay. So... John tells us what real love is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, showed, was demonstrated among us, that God sent his only son into the world. You know, we read that and we just sort of gloss right over it. Oh yeah, God sent his son into the world. I know that story. 
so that we might live through him. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he send his son into the world so that we might have life? I mean, really, why would he? In this is love. Not that we have loved God. It's like, here, get a clue. Ready? The big deal is not that you love God. Because he is most beloved and glorious and magnificent. And if you have any sort of sense at all, you're, you're going to know you should love him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. This is, this is what's remarkable. This is what's worth talking about, that he loved us and sent his son, his only son, his beloved son, the son that he loved, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation there is very important. It's a word that means to bear away wrath. To bear away wrath. So he sends his son so that his son might receive in his person all of God's wrath. Say the word all. All of God's wrath for all of your sin. Say all. All of God's wrath for all of your sin is poured out on the head of the Son. So that on the cross, on the cross, the Christ who is hanging there in shame, in humiliation, probably naked, we don't know that from the text, but we do know that Roman crucifixions of males was always done with the criminal being stripped naked so that people could go by and crucified at eye level, not high, eye level, so people could go by and mock him and make fun of him, laugh at him, throw scorn at him. We do see that happening, don't we? Okay. Then, then, which is terrible, horrific, he's hanging naked in shame for you so that you don't have to be ashamed before God anymore. He's doing that for you, and then the suffering starts because then the Father pours out all of his wrath for all of your sin on the head of his son so that the son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, it was the first time that he had ever lost fellowship with his father in heaven. Now, he did that propitiation. He did that for you because he loves you. And we sort of spend our lives wondering whether or not God kind of really likes us. I mean, you know, you sent your son and all that, but 
I've been praying about this for a really long time and you really haven't answered my prayer. I'm not really sure you love me. It's like, excuse me? Remember the word propitiation. On the cross, God the Father pours out all of his wrath for all of your sin. That means the sin you committed before you were a Christian. And if you're not a Christian tonight, I will say to you, God has wrath for you. When we all stand before God and everyone will give an account of himself before God, when you stand before God, someone will have to pay for your sin. It will either be you and you will experience wrath or it will be the son and he's already paid for it. So you stand before the Lord and all of God's wrath for all of the sin that you committed before you were a Christian, all the sin you have committed since you've been a Christian, and now, hang on, all of the sin you have yet to commit. Right? See, because the cross happened in the past. For Christ, that propitiation he was doing was for all future sin, and actually the sin of the saints of the Old Testament. So all of your sin, all your sin has already been punished in Christ so that he cries out in agony. Now you want to know what love is? That's what love is. So John says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Think of that. He loved us and sent his son to receive all his wrath for our sin. Big sins, that sin that you think about that you committed and you just sort of can't get over the fact that you did it. Little sins, sins that seem to you little. Little things that you do every day. Talking about somebody, snide word, some self-indulgence, wasting of time. Lack of love for neighbor, lack of love for God, all of your sin, he bore the wrath for that. See, if we, if we spend time, if I, if I came in here and had you spend time making a list of all the things you needed to do, we would miss this. And this, this is what will make us love God. And begin, really, to fulfill the first and second commandment, you see. Because then, John says, we love because he first loved us. So I want to spend time thinking about God's love for me in Christ simply because, simply because, there's a command on my life, a law, and the law is you must love God and you must love your neighbor, and I know I don't. How do I get there? I know I should. I know I should love. I know I should love. But it just seems like I really struggle with loving. 
I mean, I can do all kinds of good stuff, but can I really love from the heart? And the thing that will change my heart and make me love is to remember that he first loved me. I think so many of us just go through our lives thinking that God looks at us and says, not really sure how you got in here, but you're here, so okay. You're part of the family, and I'm God. I got to like you. So just go stand over there with the dunce caps, and yeah, I'm sort of waiting for you to get your act together. And we probably never would sort of come out and say that, but I think we have this sort of underlying unbelief that God could possibly love us as much as he says he does. So why should we reconsider? Because our faith will grow in direct proportion to our apprehension of his love. Have you come to know and believe that he loves you? That's what 1 John 4, 16 says. If you come to know and believe, believe means when your husband gets fired, do you know and believe that he loves you? Do you know and believe that he loves you when your child comes home from school with another note from the principal? Do you know and believe that he loves you when you're homeschooling? I don't need to even answer and add anything to that. It's just like, wow. And I homeschooled my kids for a number of years, and every, every day it was like, I'm doing this today. I'm not sure I'm doing it tomorrow. <laughs> um, do you know and believe that God loves you? Our obedience has to be f- fueled by this love. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Now, when John writes the word behold, it's kind of like, and if you're sleeping right now, I'm sorry. (laughs) Wake up! (laughs) Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. It's like, think about that. And we are such, we are, we are already the children of God. And then in verse 3, he says, think about this. You, everyone who has this hope that you are now the children of God, that you have been adopted, if you have this hope, you will live a pure life. Why? Because you're going to want to live to please the one who has loved you even though you continually fail. Why will he love you? Because he has adopted you. He has made you his child. Obedience that is not motivated by love is worthless. I think that for many of us, And I've been counseling um, since the late 1980s. 
And as I have talked with people about why they want to change or, you know, what their, what their motivation is for, you know, wanting to get over it, whatever it is, a lot of times it has to do with, uh, you know, well, if, if I don't get over my anger, I'm going to ruin my children. If I don't... Um, if I don't get over my anger, then my husband's never going to X. If I, you know, that kind of thing. It's, I, I hate going to bed at night feeling like I blew it again. All of that kind of obedience, that's got nothing to do with God. Mormons think that way. See, the only kind of love that has anything to do with God is by faith, Believing that I can love God, continue to fight against my sin. See, look at what Paul says there in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, religious activity, neither circumcision or uncircumcision or uncircumcision, living a riotous life, counts for anything. Neither religious activity or irreligious activity counts for anything. Neither one. Only, but only, faith working through love. So, why? Why do I want to seek to overcome sin in my life? Why do I want to seek to love God? Is it so that I can go to bed at night and feel good about myself? So that I can be free of guilt so that people will like me, if it's for any of those kinds of reasons. It's not for God. See, and then that changes obedience. Because then all of a sudden I start thinking, wow, ee. there's like a lot of times in my life when I try to be better, but most of it has to do with me wanting to be better for me. And then somehow, you know, God won't be mad at me or something. See, obedience that is not motivated by love is worthless. Now, what might it be? Obedience that is not motivated by love is worthless. It may be self-righteousness. It's, you know, did you ever say, look at some group of people or some person or your own kid or your husband or whatever and say, I can't believe they do that. Did you ever think that thought? That's what's commonly called self-righteousness. <laughs> See, if you look at other people and can't believe the way they sin, that's self-righteousness. So, you know, you look at X group of people and you think, oh, pfft, Lance Armstrong big liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah, you would. See, you know, we're all, we're all deceived, just different ways, different places. So you look at somebody like that or whomever, you know, walk into the temple with a publican and say, not Republican, publican. <laughs> <laughs> and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I pay tithes, and I 
am holy and I do good and I thank you I'm not like him. And this man, this sinner, can't even lift up his eyes to God but instead just beats on his breast and says, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus tells that parable in Luke 18. And the point of the parable is this. One person in that story is self-righteous and the other person in that story is righteous. And it's not who you would think. Now, you all know the story already. So you think, oh, well, of course, it's that humble person. How many times are you that other person? See, a lot of times we are motivated to be obedient because we want to feel good about ourselves, right? And look down on others. It may be penance. You understand the word penance? That's like, I'm going to make up for it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work really hard today because yesterday I was such a slug. That's penance. Penance is trying to make it up to God. So I'm going to say 2,600 Hail Marys to make up for the fact that yesterday I said a word I shouldn't have said. That's penance. We don't do that. We're Protestants. You're going to have to clean that up. <laughs> See, what do you think they were protesting? You know, those Protestants? They were protesting against penance, one of the things. Thinking that you, by your own merit, by your own work, would be able to make something up to God. Be done with that. You can't make anything up to God. You cannot. You can't. And by the way, you don't even need to. That's the good news. The good news is it's already all been made up. You don't need to try to make anything up. It may be self-assurance. You know, I have someone in my family who said uh, a number of years ago, this whole message of the gospel really makes me nervous because I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to sort of keep my act together if I think that God's just going to love me. So if that's the truth, then why are you keeping your act together? Is it so that you can feel good about yourself? And then finally, do you know the name David Brainerd? David Brainerd was a missionary to Native Americans, the American Indian, and I want to say in the late 1700s, early 1800s, but I may be wrong. And in his diary, he talks about the years and years that he spent in fasting and prayers and harsh treatment of the body and going out and ministering to Indians and, and just pouring out his life. And on and on and on and on, he talks about all of the ways that he continued to look through his own soul and make sure everything was together and he was doing the right thing. And, and I mean, really, if you had looked at his life, you would have thought, wow, 
This guy really loves God. He said in his diary that the reason he was doing all that was because it was a way for him to avoid Jesus' Savior. See, what the gospel message is this. The gospel message is meant to kill you. You know that whole part about, you know, lose your life and all of that. The gospel message is meant to kill you, and what it's meant to do, it's meant to slay all of that business of your own self-assurance, your own abilities, your um, thought that you might be able in some way, if you really get your act together, to merit God's love. The gospel comes to you and says, you have two commands in your life. Here's the law. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. You never hear yourself, and you've never done it. What you deserve is hell. You're more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But part two of the gospel, that's not where the gospel ends. You see, the law comes and condemns us. That's the, that's the function of the law. The first function of the law is to come and kill you and tell you, you know, it's not just an issue of making a list of the 15 things you need to do to be good Mrs. Christian. It's you've got to love your neighbor. Even when her dog barks 24-7. <laughs> you have to love your neighbor. The way you already love yourself. You say, well, I'm not really sure I love myself. Well, the reason that you don't like yourself or maybe even loathe yourself, is because you really do love yourself. You just can't believe that you're as big of a moron as you are. <laughs> See, we all by nature love ourselves. That's why Jesus didn't say, go love yourself. He said two commands, love God, love your neighbor. You've never done it, so the law comes to you and it says to you, you can't do it. So die to that. Die to the thought that you can do it. And then let Christ raise you into new life. Raise you into new life where you say, I can't, but he did. He did. He loved his father with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, even when he was hanging on the cross, deserted by his father. He loved him. And he loved his neighbor. Who was his neighbor at that moment? That thief hanging there with him. And he turns to him in all of his agony. I mean, you can't even imagine. You know that word excruciating? In that word excruciating is, is C-R-U-X, which is a word that talks about the cross. The cross, that's where that word comes from. Excruciating. Worst kind of pain ever, pain on the cross. In that pain, he turns in shame, in humiliation, he turns to the person next to him and brings him life. That is what it means to love your neighbor. That. He looks at his mother who is standing before him and he cares for her. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. That, that's what love is. That. And you've never done it. 
not with a pure motive, and certainly not 24-7. That's meant to kill you. I hope it does. I hope it slays you in the dust. And then I want to tell you what to do. Flee to Jesus Christ. Run to Christ. Because he loves you. And he already knows how you have failed to love. So you run to him. And you think of him and what he has done. In the gospel, this is where the love of God is most clearly seen. It's in the gospel, in the incarnation, that God, the second person of the Trinity, who always existed, was not created at Bethlehem, always existed as the second person in co-equal authority and being with the Father. He, the second person of the Trinity, even before Bethlehem, had made an agreement with the Father and the Spirit that at the fullness of time, he would come into the womb of the Virgin Mary. In a sense, enter an ovum. Now, if right now your brain isn't just kind of going... <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it ought, it ought to blow your brain out. It certainly did to the early Christians. It's like, what? what? So God, the second person of the Trinity, who the Word, who created all things and upholds all things by His power, through whom all things exist and cohere, Him, He, entered into the uterus of about a 14-year-old virgin girl. And took to himself, John says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ, the word, took to himself human flesh. It wasn't like radioactive flesh. Okay? He didn't glow in the dark. He didn't have a halo. You know, and there's all those lovely sort of pictures of, you know, Jesus, and like his face, he looks like an adult. And, you know, baby Jesus, and he's got a little halo. Uh-uh. He looked like any other little baby ever. He had to have his diaper changed. He was born, as my friend Rob Rosenblatt says, placenta and all. Okay? Just like you. There's a big point there. He's entering into humanity. Why? Because humanity, because he loves humanity, and if he doesn't do this, then there will not be anyone who will be righteous, and all of us will be consigned to outer darkness. So he must do this to come and get us. So then he's born like an infant, and he grows both Luke and Hebrews tells us that he grew, he grows. How does God grow? Well, in his humanity, he does not draw upon his deity at all. You know that he's the God-man, but he never draws upon his deity at all. 
as a youngster growing up, he had to learn speech. Think of that. The word had to learn Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever it was that he spoke. He had to learn those words. He had to learn how to write. When he went to school, he didn't get A's on all his tests because he was a kid. He was a normal kid. At some point along in there, before he gets to his 12th birthday or the 12th Passover, he learns who he is, whether that is in part through Mary and Joseph telling him or just because Joseph takes him to synagogue and he listens to, he listens to the reading of Isaiah 53 and the Holy Spirit speaks into his heart and says, that's you. We don't know when he learned it, but by the time he was 12, he knew. The most shocking thing in the whole world is that he's 12 years old and he goes up to Jerusalem, and you know how it goes. They lost him, and they go away, and then they come back, and they search for three days, and, you know. <clears throat> and I'm sure when they found him, um, Mary says to him, uh, Son, why have you treated us? I'm sure she didn't say, Oh, honey, we've been searching everywhere for you for three days. Why did you treat us like that? You know, it's like, funk. Right? I mean, come on. These are real people. And he says, oh, wait, what? You didn't know I was going to be here? Really shocking thing there is that at that point, we know that he knows who his true father is. Perhaps she told him. And he then, Luke tells us, that he goes back and submits himself to their authority. Go figure. See, why does he do that? So that he can be one of us. He knows exactly what it's like to live in a home with ungodly authority. And then, of course, he lives this sinless life. And I'll go more into this tomorrow, but he lives this sinless life. And what that means is when his brother or brothers or sisters, you know, bonk him on the head with a piece of wood, he doesn't pick it up and hit him back. He loves them. And when they tattle on him and blame him for stuff, he doesn't, he doesn't you know, like retaliate. And then, on or around his 30th year of life, he meets up with his cousin John in the Jordan River. And you know what he's doing there? See, John is baptizing for the remission of sins. Did Jesus have any sin to be remitted? Why is Jesus being baptized? For you. For you, he is being baptized in your place so that in your baptism, you have the righteousness of Christ. Get that? So he lives a sinless life and then he's baptized and he's called out into the desert. He's called into the desert to be tempted and he resists all the temptation in his humanity, not as God, but in his humanity, in weakness and hunger, he resists all of Satan's 
temptations. Why? Because you need his righteousness. You need his record of obedience, of resisting sin. You know why? Because sometimes you don't, right? Yes? <laughs> Hello? So he lives a sinless life, and then he dies a substitutionary death. So all of the sin that you have committed had to be punished by God's wrath. And all of God's wrath for all of your sin that you would have received for an eternity was poured out on the sun in your place. And at that moment, a transaction happened. And the transaction was he became sin so that you might become righteousness. And then he's laid in the grave Three days, laid in the grave, and before his body begins to decompose, he's raised again by the power of God. And the resurrection is God's shout of amen to Christ, it is finished. Because when he said it is finished on the cross, the sky was dark and silent. Why? Because you need a Savior who knows what it is to die, who has walked through death for you, so that you will never walk through death alone. And he's done it righteously, perfectly in your place. So Paul says at the end of Romans 4 that he died for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Justification. Here we go. Ready? What does it mean? Just as if I had never sinned, right? Yes? Just as if I had never sinned. When God looks at you, it's just as though you had never sinned. Justification. But that's not all it is. It's complete forgiveness, but that's not all. It's not only just as if I had never sinned. It is also just as if I had always obeyed. That is your record before God right now if you're a believer. When God looks at you, he looks at you with all of your sins forgiven, completely clean slate, completely clean slate, but not just clean, but also written on by all of the magnificent, perfect obedience of Christ. That's your record before God right now. Um, I, I mean, is that good news? Is that good news? See, that, that's the news. Now, when I tell you that, Oh, and by the way, he's ascending. He ascended. He ascended, and what he's doing right now is interceding for you. See, he's a good husband. Uh, when I travel, my husband says to me, Honey, I'm praying for you. Jesus Christ is a good husband. 
And you know what he's saying to you right now? Honey, I'm praying for you. That your faith will not fail. That's good news. Right? See that? That thing, that, that little warmth that you're feeling in your heart right now, by the Spirit, that, what that does, what that is, it's meant to impel you to love. So now, when I say all that to you, and I tell you you've got this clean record, not only do you have this beautiful clean record, but you've also got all of the righteous acts of Jesus Christ written on it. When I tell you that, do you then think, oh good, well then I can just go do whatever I want. Is that what you think? No, of course not. Right. Of course not. We're scared to death to tell people this message. If you have a heart at all, and you hear me say, he loves you, and this is how much he loved you, and this is what he's done, and you're completely forgiven, and you're completely righteous, and I don't care what you've done. You are now and always will be, if you are his, you are now and always will be completely forgiven, completely righteous. Now when I say that to you, some people might get nervous and think, yeah, but don't say that because then people are just going to go, live like the devil. <laughs> Listen, have all the rules helped you? You understand. All right, I'm stopping. <coughs> I'm going to pray for you now. And then I, we are or are not going to have announcements, and I'll let you all figure that out. <coughs> Lord God, we would humble our hearts before you now and pray that you would give us faith to believe. This incomprehensible, all-surpassing, glorious message that you have loved us, you have seen us as we truly are, and yet you have loved us, and Lord Jesus, that you have done everything for us. May we live in humble gratitude and get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.